Yeah, the relationship is foundational for psychology. And it's like been found to be somewhere around 60 to 70% of intervention effects is based on the relationship itself, which is phenomenal. So if you come in with the best tool, but you don't have any sort of connection, it usually doesn't work out. Welcome to the Performance Nutrition Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubbs. Welcome back, or welcome to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. I'm Dr. Mark Bubbs, performance nutritionist, and this is our final episode of season number seven. In episode 20, we'll be celebrating once again hitting the one million downloads milestone by sharing a part two of the highlights from the last seven years of the Performance Nutrition Podcast. If you're new to the podcast, this will give you a chance to get caught up, a little whirlwind tour, and if you're a regular listener, a chance to revisit some of the amazing insights by leading experts in their fields. Before we dive in, I'm excited to announce the new Dr. Bub's Athlete Performance Nutrition Members Area. The Locker Room has just launched for 2024. For just $9 per month, you'll get access to all the latest talks, our monthly speaker series, and past course modules, all deep dives from experts in the field on a range of performance nutrition topics. Sign up today to get access to Vitamin D in Athletes, Health, Testing, and Performance by Dr. Daniel Owens, The New Science of Nutrition for Sleep with Dr. Kate Pumpa, and The New Science of Sweat Testing with Andy Blow. For just $9 a month, you can stay up to date on all the latest in performance nutrition, join our live monthly speaker series, and get access to content across the board in performance nutrition. Just head over to drbubs.com forward slash subscribe to subscribe, save, and keep leveling up your nutrition. Awesome. Let's get the ball rolling on this episode. In this first series of clips, we'll talk carbohydrate periodization. You'll hear from Dr. Sam Empey, PhD, on his work in carbohydrate periodization in endurance sport. And in clip number two, Dr. Graham Close, professor at Liverpool John Morris University, and his tremendous work in rugby and the use of carbohydrate periodization in team sport. Enjoy. The easiest one, I guess, is to start with with carbohydrate availability. And um, I guess what the, the definition that, that, that we put forward um, in, in our... Um, sports med paper last year was um, we'd probably say that carbohydrate availability is the, the sum of the endogenous, so the, the store of muscle uh, and liver glycogen, um, plus the exogenous carbohydrate, so the carbohydrate consumed before um, and during exercise, uh, for example, um, uh, that's available uh, to kind of sustain the required intensities uh, and durations of training. So it's that combination of what's already inside the body uh, and also what you what you put in, um, you know, in the in the immediate period before and, and during <clears throat> exercise um, that's available for, for utilization. Um, so I think that's kind of a, a pretty simple and, and pretty easy to understand definition of, of what what we what we try to term as carbohydrate availability. If we talk about train low, what does what does that mean to get all the listeners here on the same page? Yeah, exactly. So I guess then when we go into kind of train low, I think there's um, this again kind of maybe is comes towards some some nuanced stuff as well. So my definition would be uh, training with a reduced uh, reduced amount of carbohydrate. Now, um, the the interesting thing around that is is that 
that can actually be done in a, or looked at in a couple of different ways, I guess. So, um, for example, you could, uh, you know, you could uh, intentionally deplete uh, muscle glycogen and, and liver glycogen, uh, either with a, an exercise bout or by changing your diet. And then uh, in before, uh, you know, a, a specific exercise session and undertake that exercise session um, with reduced muscle glycogen. Um, but actually then if you fed carbohydrate during that session, um, what you're doing is you're not compromising the ability to complete the exercise session because you're potentially you're feeding carbohydrates. So even though you have low muscle glycogen availability, you may still have adequate carbohydrate availability because of, of, of what you put in. And then that also works in the flip side that actually if you start a, an exercise session with you know, relatively kind of medium or, or high muscle glycogen, but the duration is is long enough or the intensity is high enough um, without kind of putting in any exogenous carbohydrates, you can actually reach a state of, of training in, uh, in a low carbohydrate state, even though you started with relatively, um, you know, normal or, or slightly above normal muscle glycogen concentrations. So um, I think when you think about it like that, uh, you actually see that the, there is kind of a slightly more uh, there's slightly more nuance to to exactly what train low is than just kind of one one definition per se. So, um, and that that was actually summarized kind of uh, pretty well in a, in a paper that um, James and Louise and, and Trent Stellingworth actually published. Uh, I think it's towards the back end of last year or early this year. Absolutely, yeah. You, I mean, you did a great job as well in your paper, and of course, uh, Trent and, and company in their recent paper. And you know, you discuss how carbohydrate restriction can potentially enhance some of these exercise nutrient-sensitive cell signaling pathways that regulate mitochondrial adaptation. So maybe for the listeners, we can give a, an example here of you know, perhaps we could start with you know, fasted training. Can you walk listeners through what's happening at the cellular level and potentially in terms of uh, performance adaptations? Yeah, sure. Um, so I guess when when we look at fasted training. Um, this would be the the context where uh, you'd have um, obviously uh, a low uh, or no um, exogenous, so you're not obviously going to feed carbohydrates before you do a faster training session. Um, but what you'll also have is you'll have kind of relatively low liver glycogen concentration because the the liver su sustains blood glucose, a minimum dose of, of blood glucose that's required to sustain the CNS. So uh, that comes from the liver. Um, but what you could actually have is potentially have a, a high or relatively high muscle glycogen, mm -hmm. depending on, on what you'd eaten the evening before. So th there's already a kind of a couple of a nuances around kind of some of the stuff we were talking about there that, you know, your liver, gly your, um, liver glycogen is likely to be kind of fairly low, but your muscle glycogen could be relatively high. And then if you don't feed any exogenous carbohydrates, then you're obviously kind of creating that sun a low carbohydrate scenario that way. Um, and interestingly, I, I think what you see a lot with fasted training and, and just, just generally in, from, you know, exercising, uh, certainly without, without in, intake of any carbohydrates is that, uh, when the liver is, is low in, in glycogen, you get a naturally get a big spike in, uh, circulatory free fatty acids. So, uh, particularly this is, this is even kind of even more potent when you add the exercise stimulus on top. So, so what you do is you kind of change that um, that circulatory environment. So uh, you get a, a big increase in, in free fatty acids uh, or 
lipid breakdown peripherally, um, which increases the free fatty acid availability in the blood, um, which can then be uptake, uh, taken up and, and used by the by the muscles for, for an energy source, assuming the intensity is, uh, is appropriate for that. Um, and so by changing the fuel that the, or by changing the contribution of the fuel that the muscle uses during exercise, you then change the way that the uh, muscle adapts to that exercise session. So in this context, you're increasing the fat utilization during exercise. And what that tends to do is increase the um, gene response for proteins that are involved in fat transport and oxidation, for example. So we see a lot of the, the kind of the studies that have looked at faster training tend to see a, an increase in, uh, in the gene responses for, um, you know, uh, CPT1 and, and beta oxidation uh, proteins. Uh, so transport and, and mm -hmm. oxidation of fats as a kind of as an artifact of, of shifting the, the fuel, the predominant fuel that's available for energy um, or certainly that's coming into the cell. Uh, during during that type of fasted training. So um, whether you get kind of um, really, I don't know, I don't know that the, uh, the cellular uh, adaptations in terms of like the potency of the stimulus is as great as some of the other kind of typical train low uh, methodologies. For example, it's it tends the severity of the challenge on homeostasis isn't isn't as great as some of the others so um the, uh, you know it's kind of it's not so much of the um the sledgehammer effect i guess is maybe maybe a good way to look at it but it's like a tool you have in your toolbox so we use kind of uh, periodization of training why don't we use periodization of nutrition around that given that we know you can alter the the metabolic state and the the responses of, of skeletal muscle to training by by manipulating some of the nutrition um, you know, I think when you think about it that way, it's kind of, it, it just, it just kind of comes back to what, what tools do you have at your disposal to, to bring about the adaptations that you want. Um, and for me, faster training as, uh, you know, as you say, kind of is, uh, is historically kind of quite well understood, um, maybe conceptually slightly misunderstood as to, um, you know, how maybe is best to do it. Um, you know, there can be compromising effects, but for sure, yeah. I think it has, you know, a, a really useful place in, in modern sports nutrition. If we look then at a different strategy, um, you know, in terms of two-a-day training, you know, back to that sort of elite endurance athlete, how do things change with respect to glycogen levels and cellular adaptations when we look at athletes performing two-a-day sessions? Yeah, that's that's a really interesting one. So um, I guess the, the real indicator uh, or the first real study that's set out to look at um, Kind of intentionally using twice per day training to manipulate or as the potential to manipulate um, training adaptations was was done back in in 2005 by um, by Ben Saltine's group and and the, the first authors Hansen um, so they had they had they used a like a classic Copenhagen model so it's like a, a leg kicking exercise um, and they kind of really showed that actually if you intentionally do sort of 50 percent of your training so the second session of the day, uh, you know, with with low glycogen availability, they got uh, an increase in kind of some of the enzymes involved in uh, in beta oxidation, um, as well as uh, the content of COX proteins, the the mitoc some of the mitochondrial proteins, and and they saw an improvement in performance. Now, that's obviously 
in leg kicking and not a you know necessarily a, um, a true artifact of of, of what a, what elite athletes do mm-hmm. um and so uh, you know from a from a cellular perspective i think you're uh by doing twice a day training you're increasing the it's it's a way to increase the stress on the second session is maybe a, a good way to think about it and so what you want to do is perturb homeostasis as as relatively as as much as possible and actually by creating a, a an additional metabolic stress by reducing glycogen content it's a it's a way to do that without requiring any further um you know intensity or duration um or you know additional mechanical stress that you'd have to create uh, if you did it um in a in a state of you know of high muscle glycogen as it were so um wh- when you look at it that way you kind of go okay well it makes sense but there are a couple of caveats to that in that, you know, you, you kind of traditionally and, and typically you always see uh, compromised absolute training intensity. So you need to be pretty strategic about what the type of second session is going to be. So mm-hmm. ideally it would be kind of higher intensity work in the first session and then maybe lower intensity and a more sort of um, sustained kind of, you know, base aerobic type session for the second one. So because you don't want to compromise the the quality of the training, so if you can if you can fit that into uh, to your program and and then you know you want to use it that way, then then that's great, and you can create as I said that additional metabolic stress by reducing muscle glycogen. But the, the other thing to to kind of take away from that is is that actually well, it's it's kind of difficult to necessarily to pick out whether that stress is purely from reducing or having reduced muscle glycogen um it could also be like a, an effect of energy deficit for example mm-hmm. um but then you also have the the kind of compounding effects of well you're actually stacking exercise sessions training sessions in in pretty co- close sort of temporal proximity um and so you're you're naturally going to have altered the environment that you start the second session in um even if you are in a you know uh, in addition to being in a, in a lower glycogen state. So um, it, it's kind of, it's still quite difficult to pick out, you know, exactly uh, what the what the driving factor between those uh, enhanced, uh, certainly, you know, cellular cellular effects are. Um, and, and it's, you know, for me, that's, I, you know, I, I like it when I, when I hear people say that, because that, that to me says, that's a great reason to, you know, to do more research on this topic. And Absolutely. To, you know, really look into it. If we dovetail into, you know, another type of, of strategy here, which is the sleep low, train low strategy, could you, sure. uh, which is a whole other um, area here, could you define this strategy for listeners and, uh, you know, once again, discuss how things shift here with this type of train low strategy? Yeah, for sure. So I think this is kind of, I think we've probably gone through, um, uh, I think we've probably gone through maybe the, uh, you know, I mentioned kind of fasting is the sort of uh, the least uh, sort of intense uh, intervention. I think mm-hmm. twice per day training is pretty tough. And then I think sleep low, train low is your, is your kind of your sledgehammer, your, you know, your, your hardest level in, in my opinion anyway. Um, so, and this is where, so what you do is you would intentionally lower muscle glycogen um, in the evening. Of the first day however you did that with um you know either interval session or uh, an extended um extended training session so the idea is to to really bring muscle 
muscle glycogen down pretty low. Uh, you then have uh, a, a kind of protein-only meal, maybe some, uh, you know, as well, maybe some some dietary fats and some fiber, that kind of stuff, um, and try and rehydrate a little bit. Uh, then you go to bed, and then you get up in the morning, and then you do uh, a, a fasted session, so uh, or a uh, you, you train without having had any carbohydrates uh, again the next morning. Um, and so what this does is if you think about um, the duration, the time duration that you're in a, a low glycogen state with with twice per day training, you're maybe in a low glycogen state for, um, you know, maybe two to five hours. Um, whereas with sleep low, train low, what we're doing is put you in, in putting you in a low glycogen and, and low energy state for, uh, you know, maybe closer to 12 to 18 hours. So we're, we're extending that energetic stress prior to starting the, the second um, the second exercise session. So um, uh, and this um, this kind of tends to have uh, a, a lot of the same effects. Uh, we see a lot of the same responses that um, that you see uh, with with faster training and with uh, twice per day training. But um, there, there's some there seems to be something about um, the way that it's manipulated uh, that kind of seems to translate better into performance outcomes than than the twice per day training or, or the faster training, for example. So, um, you, you know, there's 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 well, there's a whole load of possibilities as to what it could be. Um, so, you know, and I think that's that's probably another uh, two or three hours of podcast <laughs> to uh, to get into that one. So. You know, if we pivot there and start talking about some of your work in sport, and obviously we hear a lot about fueling for the work required and, and working in contact sports like rugby, fueling for the damage induced. Can you talk a little bit about, I mean, obviously through your career, but through your research, how collisions impact energy demands? Because when we think of the translation to American football, to ice hockey, to all these sports where, you know, it is, is obviously playing a key, key role and it's oftentimes can still get missed. Yeah, so the second paper you talked about, what we call Fuel for the Damaging Juice, was kind of pinching my colleague James Morton's Fuel for the Work Required. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Nicely so, done. so James published that data, which I think has been amazing. I was proud to be involved with that with James. Where for many years, we've grown in our department to think about carbohydrate in a very much a periodization strategy. And you've got a group of people who are saying that carbohydrates are all evil and that's why we're overweight. And then another group of people saying athletes must live on carbohydrates. And what we've realized over the years is actually we need to fuel for work required. So there will be certain days where I go quite low on carbohydrates. And then other days where we really ramp it up, particularly the day before a game. So mm -hmm. we were carbohydrate loading, but maybe on our low training days, we're a little bit low. So, so that was, I think, a little bit game-changing and, and really changed the way that a lot of people think about carbohydrate in sports. But a follow-up to that, and it was work from James Hudson, who's my PhD student, who's, again, a former rugby player, now the nutritionist for Gloucester Rugby in the UK. We got speaking about, within this fuel for the work required paradigm, were we giving enough attention to what happened after the event? So we were getting really clued in on what we do building up and during an event, but what about after? Uh, and we noted that from working rugby, the day after a game is often a really poor eating day. And that's partly because you feel like you've been run over by a bus. 
Mm. Uh, and you maybe want that little bit of extra time in bed. Some comfort foods. and Correct, yeah. So your comfort foods or even skipping a breakfast because you want to stay in bed or, mm. uh, or whatever. Uh, and was realising that, does the body actually need more on that time? It makes perfect sense. So James managed to get the Gloucester rugby team to come in every day of the week to get the met- metabolic rates measured. And what he showed quite clearly was in the days after a game, resting metabolic rate was increasing. And in some situations, by greater than 500 calories. Wow. And that's huge if you think about RMR is normally pretty tight. Mm-hmm. But the day after a rugby game, the body's crying out for at least another 500. So we followed that up then with some novel metabolomics techniques. So for those who aren't familiar with metabolomics, it's the latest probably in the omics where we've gone through genomics, studying mm-hmm. the entire genome, proteomics, and now we're into the entire metabolome. And what we were seeing in this situation is despite feeding more protein, we were seeing increased protein oxidation. But actually, it seemed that that protein oxidation was to provide substrates for gluconeogenesis. Interesting. So the body's wanting more carbohydrate in this situation is our interpretation. And he's potentially getting that from protein. So we thought, well, actually, the body wants more carbohydrate. And we did see an increase in RER. And this was a day when traditionally we would go quite low on carbohydrate because in the fuel for the work required paradigm, there's not a lot of work required. <laughs> and so that's sure. why we, we made it the suggestion about, okay, as well as fueling for work required, let's also fuel for the damage induced. And that immediately changed how my mindset and how I tried to feed the rugby players. And I think it would be important for things like NFL and other collision-based sports were the day after a game, we know there's an increased caloric requirement, but also the metabolomic work we do is suggesting as well as keeping protein high, we probably have made a mistake in the past by ramping protein even higher. Mm-hmm. We're actually, as we know, once we've hit that protein threshold, what we probably should have been doing is giving more carbohydrate to help with recovery. And that's what I now do. It's fascinating stuff, especially when we think of a season, you know, I'm thinking of an NHL season, 82 games or an NFL season, obviously in rugby. Mm-hmm. For the coach, the practitioner listening in on that, day after the game, just as you said, you feel like you've been hit by a bus. What are some of the strategies then to help get the guys and gals even who are, you know, the appetites may be down, you know, how do we then get extra carbohydrate? Does it matter if it's coming more in simple form? Like what, what are your, some of your go-tos? Yeah, I really don't think it does matter if it comes in simple form. And um, one of the things that we've tried to do is take the players on a recovery journey. So, what we'll do is obviously have a food in the different stations, but make sure we'll make a little bit more emphasis with the visit. But obviously we go to the protein station, so we get their omelets. But then there may be a, um, a specific recovery station next, which will be, we might have three different shots, but all carbohydrate-based, but with one with berries. Mm. You know, um, we, we might try and have one with a bit more greens-based. So almost make it a little traffic light system, a a red, amber, green, but it's just a neat way of getting three little shots into them with different nutrition that we think will be good. We might put things uh, on that are a bit more fun on that day. We will always have a big recovery smoothie that we use. Uh, And we try and make that day a bit of fun as well. And we might even finish with like a relaxation station where in the summer it might be an iced latte and even a little bit of carrot cake or something like that. 
Yeah, so yeah. just by trying to make that recovery process a bit more fun, we might, if the weather's nice, take it outside and have some fun activities outside as well. Um, we might have a saunas and the ice baths outside uh, with the, the food all next to it on this recovery station. Mm-hmm. And we find then that by making a bit of fun and making a thing of it, the players spend more time in that world and then yeah. they'll be snacking and grazing and, and then we can really make a big effort to actually get them out of bed and get them into the recovery process. And, and we found that's had a great effect. Tremendous. I definitely want to come back to that sort of, yeah, creating the atmosphere and the fun piece because it does play such a big role in, in food. What would your suggestions be for certain sports where the athletes have an off day the following day? And so they're not coming into the facility and they're at home. And so for the practitioner, then sort of providing suggestions might be a little bit similar to what you suggested there, but are there ways that you might think about it of saying, okay, how are we going to help this athlete who's, you know, tired and wants to sleep in to get that extra energy? Yeah, I, I think education, and I'm going to say that being a, a university <laughs> academic, everything's about education, but I think an awareness that, Luke, you know, as much as you probably want to stay in bed and rest, the best thing we can do is get you up and get you moving and get the nutrition into you straight away. And then we can start to look at, even if you're from home, whether it's relaxation, ice baths in your own house or whatever, but just an education. And then just pitching it in that same way that I said about, Luke, what we're trying to achieve and whether we go with the three hours of repair, rehydrate, replace, mm-hmm. or whatever system you want to come up with. But just an education that, Luke, we want to repair the muscles, so we want a good protein source. So knock up some omelets or something like that. We obviously want to rehydrate you, so making sure we get some good liquids. And we want to replace these uh, carbohydrates that have been lost. And, you know, we might give them recipes of different smoothies. I've mentioned that a few times, but I think when appetite's low. Nice way to get. Go into, a, you know, something like your Nutribullet or your Ninja or whatever you use. Throw in some Greek yogurt, some milk, some berries, some honey, some nut butters or whatever you want to throw in smash up a recovery smoother it's just an easy way to tick all them boxes now let's segue from contact sports to concussion and head trauma in this second set of clips you'll hear from dr matt brakes of lsu football on nutrition strategies for concussion and dr patrick o'halloran md phd on his research on novel biomarkers for detecting head trauma and concussion on the field shift gears here a little bit and maybe talk about some of your work that you did, you know, through your your PhD and talk about, you know, protecting the brain and head trauma and concussion, which is, you know, a reality in any contact sport, whether it's ice hockey, soccer, even obviously football. Um, Could you walk us through, you know, maybe some of the the rates that we're seeing in in college football and then some of the work that you did uh, doing your PhD? Yep. And and then as it's no secret, the rates as far as the concussions, arguably, it could be that we are just taking consideration and adjusting and addressing them more yeah. um, because of the awareness, or it could be that, you know, just depending on whatever the argument may be. So in my sense, I'm trying to basically, one, my biggest thing was making sure that we're a part of that communication and that return to play process. Yeah. You know what I mean? When I mean by we, I mean by us as a nutritionist and a dietitian. So we can intervene with the calories that they need and manipulate their dietary intake to counteract that lack of appetite that they may that they may experience or that lack of sleep or whatever it may be that 
or that nausea, that vomiting, whatever it may be, as far as a part of symptomology within that situation, and we can help them address and meet what they need to kind of assist with that recovery process. We're a part of that communication. We're implemented in the early stages. We're implemented throughout the duration of the return to play protocol. We're implemented in the latter stages, even after they've been cleared to play to ensure that they are staying recovered and there's no delayed symptoms at all or post-concussive syndrome or anything like that whatsoever. So with my work, it was more so of being a part of that sports medicine team and staff and making sure that within our protocols and our communication, our intervention is implemented beginning, during, and after. That's, that's amazing. And it's amazing how much things have changed, right? I mean, tw 20 years ago, there were, there were no protocols, right? I mean, tell me a little bit about how right. it was for when you played to see how it is today. And, and, you know, that just dramatic shift, right? I was shaking stuff off. When I played, I was just quote unquote shaking it off. Yeah. And it has gotten better for where there was a, probably a fear of, you could say that if you're experiencing concussion, you don't want it to impact your playing time. Yeah because it impacts you having that ability to play that exposure and, and play the game that you love from, from not um, being cleared to play. So there, there's probably some that as far as the sub-concussions or rare concussions that everyone experiences, their symptoms are all it's completely different. Yeah. So to where some of the symptoms maybe that I had, it was just, I thought it was just a, a, another old day, like I had to shake it off. Sleep was messed up, but it is what it is. Get back I'll to come it. in tomorrow, get back to it. To where now, we're not letting those symptoms slide by any means or as much as possible. Yeah. It's Anything, amazing how we can fine tune and be able to appreciate yeah. what some of these little lights in the dashboard are telling us to be able to then say, okay, this athlete's actually okay. Or versus this athlete needs more uh, support with that. And, you know, with, with your work around nutrition, I mean, what are some of the things that come up potentially to be able to help, mm -hmm. um, you know, for lack of a better term, protect the brain to some of the contact that you're going to experience in a sport like football? Yep, and, and that's, is, again, if, if you go back into what we talked about our females compared to our males, what I'm doing with compared with my basketball compared to our football. Now, granted, and, and you have some arguments within the gender discrepancies as far as like females are more prevalent to experiencing a, con a concussion mm -hmm. in that sense. But now since I'm having more of, a, of an impact-related sport, that they're having more impact exposures day-to-day, it's more so that I'm trying to give them at least that 2,000 milligrams or two grams of DHA at the minimum daily. Changing their dietary intake for those omega-3 sources, changing their dietary intake of more antioxidants, more minerals as well, more things that will help with the hydration needs too, more vitamin D, more calcium, more magnesium, more potassium, more so talk, having those conversations with them because now we're all on the same page that creatine is not a demonized supplement. Creatine is nothing but a beneficial supplement. <laughs> it's amazing how long it's taken and we're still not totally there yet, but. Uh... Right, right. I can't give it to you, but if you're going to take it, one, this are the type of supplements you need to be aware of. These are the ones you make sure they don't have, that you're limiting your risk of banned substances and those exposures to that. And then also that you're taking it based upon your lean muscle mass that we have addressed and assessed in the beginning of basically the season. I mean, it's, uh, yeah, obviously it's such an important topic and then a uh, topic that's in the news and highlighted a lot more now, which is, which is fantastic, but, but also even just in terms of mental health, because we can see, you know, if we kind of dovetail here into the rest of mental health, which is just sort of the anxieties and the pressures and the things of playing, which, you know, obviously head trauma can exacerbate, you know, yep. you guys are, you know, Notre Dame football, man, that's pretty big. That's a lot of, that's a lot of pressure, you know, with your experience with athletes. I mean, obviously they're geared up to compete but uh, we know these things happen. And so, you know, 
whether it's from your experiences or, or things you guys try to do now to help the sport athletes, can you touch on that a little bit? Yep, yep. So again, for, for my uh, situation, um, I've changed all their menus to make sure that we're increasing their their fish intake, increasing their um, their nuts and seed intake as well, alongside with during their training table sessions or the sessions that we have those meals um, after they have their competition, giving them as far as what they need supplement wise. Since I can give them fish oil based upon what their weight and their frame is and position that they have and how many snap counts that they had too. And I mean, my snap counts is how many snaps that they're taking. So how many exposures to uh, physical contact it's, that they're yeah. having to, yep. How many hits that they're being exposed to, it's going to be as far as that, that will subjectively give me kind of, okay, how many grams of fish oil do I need to give them? Um, how many to meet their DHA needs as well for the, for the situation. Um, and then also at that supplement time during those meals, after they have eight, giving them a probiotic, DHA, magnesium, uh, and vitamin D based upon whatever their needs are at that situation. Um, everyone is having, you can quote unquote, say blanket of that throughout the team. And I'm able to do that. And I'm lucky to be able to do that. And I can control that. Um, and I'm able to control and work with our dining team to ensure that we have the right foods that we need, exposures yeah. at all time to be able to do that, to make sure that they're having that stuff four to five times out the week alongside with two extra protein choices in case they don't want that yeah i mean it's amazing isn't it, how key that relationship to the to the chef or to the um kitchen staff is to be able to to create the the meals that, that athletes will enjoy and and want to eat and that type of thing and listen i mean yes. i could pick your brain here all day i know you're tight i know you're tight for time so i want to i want to <laughs> finish you, off here by circling back to just uh, i know obviously you got kids at home uh, yeah. young kids at home so i'm just curious how and i know obviously kids change how we view the world and how we communicate and all these yeah. types of things so i'm curious how, how has this changed your coaching or how you, you know, with your athletes your interactions you know what are some of the how has that impacted you oh man so it, it's impacted a lot it's impacted a way of how i communicate it's impacted a way of how I, my, my tolerance as well and to be able to <laughs> and, well said. And, to be, and to be patient I feel like tolerance and patience have been, has been the biggest adjustment it is interesting seeing a, a kind of trend in, in more patients coming in um, having tried to do stuff themselves and so CBD is becoming a <laughs> yeah I was going to ask it's the next big yeah, that, that, they, that they've used CBD or they've been advised to use CBD um, products. And um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting one. I think uh, we probably won't see a, a slowing down of that anytime soon. And there'll be other things that get added to it, I imagine. Yeah, and I mean, even before supplements, I mean, with your experience in, in, in working in sport and also visiting, you know, various clinics around the world, you know, from a nutrition, sleep, you know, some of these recovery modalities, you know, again, are there certain themes that, that tend to crop up of, of modalities that can help people across the board or that tend to be emphasized? Hmm. I don't think, I don't think there are, I don't think there's a consistent approach that I've seen, um, which probably suggests that there's no one treatment, which is mm -hmm. hitting a sweet spot in terms of, of uh, affecting it. I mean, definitely inquiring around um, inquiring around sleep, you know, because 
often athletes won't necessarily report that so making sure that we inquire how we sleep and is has sleep become a problem and providing a lot of education um around you know what these symptoms mean and you know it's important that they're taken seriously but not that they kind of become you know they take over your life um yeah you know sure. keeping a kind of balance in terms of what you're doing and you know it's not bad for you to start doing um aerobic exercise that, that doesn't provoke your symptoms um i think those are probably the the kind of consistent themes i mean i've come come across a few interesting little bits in in terms of what i've read um so blue light in terms of uh an aid to um managing kind of sleep symptoms in in athletes after concussion has been an interesting one mm. and then one that I've, I've a couple of different people have asked me about um is exogenous ketones or ketogenic diet yeah uh, in the management of concussion and it's an intro when i when i looked i looked about a year ago at um what was out there and most of what i could find was um from rat models animal models yeah animal models that that kind of suggested so it's so obviously like there's there's some problems with with um rat models of concussion because you know rats don't have to remember a line out call and, and <laughs> yeah like sure. so at least we're not sure they don't <laughs> Yeah, at least I don't yeah. think they do. Yeah. Um, so, so you you got some kind of issues there, but but basically, it looked like some some studies were reporting that exogenous ketones were reducing um, the the magnitude of damage um, in the brain. Other studies were showing that was kind of dependent on the age of the rat. So some some um, rats who were more mature were doing worse off the back of that treatment, and the relationship with insulin levels seemed to be important an important factor in in determining whether they got benefit from it or not so it it, it all looked a little bit murky and there wasn't a clear path mm. through to say this is the optimal strategy but i know I've, I've met a couple of athletes who have decided to try it and i think the difficulty is that initially if you know if you've tried to adopt a ketogenic diet you do feel pretty rotten initially um, yeah, it's a challenge, and, and I think that's. So you imagine that, and also being concussed, <laughs> yes. um, and that they felt they felt pretty bad. But it's it, in terms of the physiology behind it, it's an interesting idea, um, and, and a, a bit of a watch this space in term in terms of. Um, I believe there are some human studies ongoing um, that haven't reported their results yet to to look at that. Yeah, yeah, but I guess potential role for exogenous ketones and things like that that you you wouldn't have to adopt a diet to be able to achieve whatever potential benefits could be uh, could be something. And and in terms yeah. of creatine, have you have you seen much around? Uh, you know, we know it can impact some of the glutamate excitotoxicity and some of that calcium influx. There's been a few you know small small studies done, but I'm not sure if that's uh, you know what the body of knowledge really is there on on creatine and concussion. Yeah, so. So just just as a as a kind of follow up to that um, ketones point, sorry. Um, yeah, absolutely, Mark. But just just as a, as a follow on to that, it's it's one of the things around the the kind of physiological concept to it is that uh, the um, the cells in the brain go through a period of metabolic shutdown where they're not able to manage um, glucose 
because of the the ionic instability that's that's occurred um and so therefore if you give an alternative fuel source and and you know cells in the brain can use glucose or ketones then will that help to um get things going a bit quicker and, and stimulate recovery and and i think um one sort of note of caution to sound is just that I don't think we know whether that's a protective process or, or not. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so potentially the metabolic shutdown may actually be um, a reason. protective process. Um, and I, I, uh, I don't know if it makes sense as an analogy, but if you've got like faulty wiring in your house, then you, you want to wait until the faulty wiring is repaired before you put like a generator through it. Uh, and set fire to the whole thing but <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, a good, that's a good that's analogy <laughs> something that's in my mind as a as a little addition to it but nice um so sorry in terms of creatine i haven't actually come across a lot uh, out there but possibly that might be because in in our study group we're pretty sure that everyone was taking creatine anyway yeah, um, yeah. just because of the setting so so yeah, no, I haven't come across too much about that, but it it, it is interesting. Yeah, that one becomes interesting in sort of younger athletes because we see, you know, especially sports like ice hockey, you get a, you know, one eleven or twelve year old when they start to body check that's, you know, five foot ten and one hundred and seventy pounds, and another eleven year old who's five foot three and one hundred and ten pounds, and and you know, so so with, with younger athletes and taking creatine is obviously something that a lot of coaches and parents. You know, still wonder about safety effects despite you know really robust uh well in adults robust uh, you know research but i mean this is potentially where there could be a benefit a protective benefit but uh again not a lot of uh research done in that uh, cohort yeah and I, and I think in terms of um the the general mood and feel there seems to be a real shift towards law changes and trying to modify the game in in youth sport to minimize the occurrence of concussion mm -hmm. so you've seen efforts to get rid of body checking efforts to limit heading in soccer um some efforts to try and look at modifying the rules in in youth rugby in in france to see whether that will reduce the the rate of concussion injuries so it is, it, and I think in large part it's because, just like you said, you've got those imbalance issues. Um, you know, chronological age and, and biological um, age are moving at different uh, speeds, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. And, and like within, I always a lovely phrase uh, that a, a youth rugby coach said to me. He was like, "It's it's biological age, um, rate of force development, those things, but it's also like propensity for violence. Mm. Um, there's, there's a big <laughs> yeah. variation." in like uh in in behavior yeah absolutely <laughs> between kids in the same age bracket absolutely patrick listen i really appreciate you taking the time out today and, and, and sharing your work and your insights you know leaving this discussion off here in terms of the evolution of of you know your research in this area or the research as a whole where do you see things going with this sort of acute diagnosis and the ability to be able to pick things these things up you know on the pitch yeah i think that biomarkers and, and the technology like that is is definitely coming we, we're getting better um, looks at which biomarkers are going to be relevant and useful and also the technology to support that being point of care is, is coming as well um, I think at the elite end it's probably going to look like uh, integrating that with existing clinical tools 
and at the the kind of amateur end um hopefully it's going to be uh, a sort of standalone thing that can be used to, to make the sport a lot lot safer um so i i think that's where diagnosis is going and the exciting thing is with each biomarker that we evaluate and that we understand the, the role and the function of we get a better idea about what the pathology is in terms of, of concussion and sport concussion and that allows us then to um to start to think about okay well can we get more effective treatments and more effective monitoring of when people are going to be safe to return so i'd say if diagnosis isn't your bag don't throw out biomarkers um, because they, they could be really exciting for other applications in the field. In the next clips, you'll hear from Stefan Van Vliet, nutrition scientist and metabolomics expert, all about his research on red meat. And then we'll segue to Dr. Keith Barr, world expert on collagen and his new research on strategies for athletes. You know, we get these messages that we should be reducing meat consumption for some of the things that you mentioned there around saturated fat intake. And we have associations that then, you know, propagate these messages, which are you know, yeah. one side of group of experts would, would say that this is evidence-based. And yet you have another side that would say, well, this isn't evidence-based. This is, you know, a little bit too myopic. Can you touch on that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, there's definitely a, a now a large concern about both the environmental and human health effects of red meat. And uh, yeah, a lot of this, at least from the human health perspective, is based on epidemiological data where we associate uh, single foods, in this case red meat, with, with deleterious outcomes such as heart disease or, or, or diabetes, obesity, you, uh, you name it, and uh, it has been associated with it. An important part is there is that I think diet quality is an important portion there because if you, if you can see in some, in some of these studies like uh, the healthy shopper studies or uh, the Oxford Epic cohort or the Albertus Tomorrow project, what you can see is that once diet quality increases, you see that these associations between red meat and human health largely become neutral. Mm -hmm. So there is obviously this concern with uh, people that tend to eat more red meat, also tend to exercise less, tend to eat less fruits and vegetables, tend to maybe uh, be of uh, general less health, healthy lifestyle factors. So, so those are definitely important nuances to recognize. And, and, and it is often true that, and also supported by randomized controlled trials, that when consumed as part of a wholesome diet, but then she also rich in fruits and vegetables. Some of these associations may disappear. And, and we notice from mechanistic data too, the combination of, and I think the French were up to something when they drank a glass of uh, red wine with their, with, their, with their meat, right? Like yeah, yeah. including some of these polyphenols and then including herbs and, and other plant foods, fruits and vegetables, and eating them in combination with meat also can make some of these, these mutagenic compounds or these, they can render them mostly in, ineffective and, and reduce their, their issues. So I'm not, don't want to say that there's no potential issue with uh, with eating red meat, uh, but I do think that diet in which this is consumed is a huge uh, modulating factor. And, and it is not uncommon. This is always mankind where we offset maybe the bad of one food with the good of another food, right? Mm. Even traditional cultures eating clay with their potatoes so they get rid of their toxins. I mean, it's, <laughs> you can you can draw that parallel to to red meat and, and fruits and vegetables too, where you bind it to because obviously. Uh, from animal foods, we do get a plethora of, uh, of nutrients that are not just beyond zinc, vitamin B, iron, but also some of these, uh, yeah, these extended compounds, some of some, some more uh, complex terpenoids like squalene or cystiamine. Cystiamine is, for instance, an important precursor to glutathione, which is a main antioxidant go, in yeah, the body. 
Yeah, and we know about taurine, for instance, and answering, which are very important for cognitive function and, and play a, a central role in, in many uh, cellular processes. And these are exclusively found in, in animal source foods, and, and especially for, for young children and, and for cognitive development, that uh, those things can be important. So while arguably, yes, we can reduce our, our red meat consumption in Western civilization, there is a need also for to uh, to, to make sure that this is yeah, stays balanced and obviously also has to be looked at in the in the context of overall uh, dietary patterns. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you touched on a few things there. One of them is, yeah, I mean, in Europe, if you're in France or Spain or Italy, you're always eating meat with vegetables, with salads, with veggies, uh, with olive oil, sometimes with a glass of wine, whereas oftentimes in, you know, when we think of the stereotypical North American meal, it's sort of like steak and potatoes and you know, if you watch any sitcoms, it's always the dad doesn't eat any vegetables at all. And that's kind of the running joke yeah. of trying to get them to eat more vegetables. So there's that whole piece to it. And then there's also that part of, of processed versus unprocessed meat, right? I mean, in terms of, of actual, you know, if you're having beef or steak versus, you know, heavily processed sausage yeah. or hamburger, can you yeah. touch on that and how that changes the story? Absolutely no, Mark. And it's, it's good that you point out that even there, there's a nuance within the processing because even in some associative data, and this is more out of, like for instance, I'm, I'm thinking about this in Morocco and in some other uh, North African and, and Middle Eastern countries where you actually, this is also observational data, but where these traditional uh, processing techniques like uh, salt fermentation versus nitrate curing, for instance, which is what we do uh, generally in, in a sort of a modern industrial setting, but doing more of a of a traditional processing of the meat, it's actually not associated with uh, some of these negative health, health outcomes of, of red meat. So, so even there, you could say, yes, processed meat, but are we looking at the meat itself or are we looking at more of these modern processing techniques, right? Because a lot of these... The more modern techniques that we use, such as nitrate curing or, or some of the additives that we do to to get this to in, that are found in processed meats, right? Yeah, those can can alter the, the healthfulness of, of the product. And, and most of our our modern ways of processing are for convenience, their efficiency, but they're not necessarily best interest of our health. Interesting, because if you you know if we took a North American population, if you just feed people more real food, then you if, if somebody is overweight, then you're going to see weight loss because caloric intake is going to go down. You're going to get improvements in glucose control. Inflammation is going to come down. And so, you know, I can appreciate if we just swap one thing out of the diet, you know, as you mentioned, some of these studies, we're not seeing it, but, but as you mentioned that kind of, if we look at it from 30,000 feet, if we're eating more real food, um, yeah. then we're likely going to get those effects. And, you know, to your point, when we look at Spain, I mean, they're going to be the longest living people by what is it? 2050. And, you know, they consume above the 10% saturated fat mark. The French consume above it. I mean, these are all populations that live longer and have fewer heart attacks than, than the recommendations that we're, we're getting. And so that notion around diet quality, you know, can you talk a bit about, you know, saturated fats and, 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 that, and that importance of diet quality, how that becomes a yeah, that, that, part of that story? It's, it's, Yes, for sure. I mean, even within saturated fat, some of these associations, if you look at more whole food sources like dairy or or beef or chocolate for that matter, some of these associations, when you look at the uh, whole food sources and of saturated fat, then again, you, you start to see that 
these associations largely uh, become neutral. So those are important things to uh, to know too, that, that definitely the matrix in which these are consumed, that we refer to as the food matrix, that, that is definitely important to, to highlight and, and therefore like messages of saturated fat are bad per se, obviously are, are a little bit more nuanced. But then again, in, in on the other hand, I mean, maybe current intakes of especially like very long chain polyunsaturated fatty acids like omega-3s, right? There, there we generally see a benefit when, uh, when you substitute those, uh, so mm-hmm. for instance, fish eaters. But at some point, yeah, that is also going to top out. But that's also think why now with these with associative data, you can generally see some of these uh, these advantages for, uh, for swapping out saturated fat with more and more unsaturated fats. But but like you like you point out in the in the in the Span, Spanish and the French, then uh, yes. There's definitely a paradox there. There is. And even just the saturated fat from junk food. I mean, that always seems to sort of get a pass in terms of all, you know, there's the tonnage of when you look at the intakes of saturated fat in these countries. I mean, the vast majority is coming from processed junk food, which which sort of seems to get a pass almost, or you sort of just, you know, yeah. and then we focus on a food that has, you know, the, the protein quality, the, the obviously the micronutrients. Now we're talking phytochemicals. Yeah. Um, and so on that bigger picture of diet quality, it does, it does become a bit of a, I guess I just, for the general public, it just becomes a distraction because you see so many people that come in that are avoiding foods. Like I don't want to eat steak, so I'm going to go for this other alternative. And it happens to be this pre-prepared, um, you know, processed, calorically rich, carbohydrate written and it's like oh we're, we're, yeah. we're making things worse than easier by the explanations yeah. that we're giving to folks you know yeah i agree it's the reductionist approach to nutrition and and it's reductionist messaging and and always associating single foods or or single uh, nutrients without respect to like like diet quality and and linking those to uh to health outcomes i think it's definitely problematic and there's a shift now slowly mm-hmm. towards more dietary patterns or where where uh, also in in the you know in my field, uh, scientists realize that we we should study a dietary balance. And you also see it with the dietary guidelines for Americans that there's more attention being paid now to dietary patterns. Where we, where we talk about like either we talk about you know Mediterranean diets, Okinawan diets, or or you name it, traditional mm-hmm. Nordic diets. What do all these diets have in common? Despite the fact that they are very much different, what they have in common that the diet quality is high. And if we dial it back to even youth athletics, you know, if I think of our young basketball players at Canada Basketball, you know, we're sort of specializing a lot younger now. And so you've got basketball players playing all year round. And to your point, we're getting explosive. Uh, so we're generating a lot of stiffness, particularly in the lower leg. And of course, now when we get to 20, 21, 24, we're seeing injuries that we used to see back when I was watching the NBA 20 years ago in sort of 30 year olds. And so I'm wondering, you know, from your perspective, a couple of things is that court time that they're exposed to part of the story here of the increased risk of injury. And, and, and I guess the next question would come around, how, how do we prevent that? So there's a whole lot in there. And the first thing is the, the youth component. And again, my daughter is 14. She's been playing high level sport for a long time. And what you always see in kids, especially kids who start to grow are what we used to call growing pains. We now call enthesotomies, which is basically at the spot where the tendon is joining the bone, there's a lot of pain associated with that. So you get that in the Achilles, mm-hmm. you get that as Osgood Schlatter in the knee, you get other knee pains associated with it. And, and classically that was like this growing pain type of thing. We use again, loading, but then we're gonna add into there, we're gonna add some nutrition in there. We get dietary collagen in there to provide a little bit more of a stimulus, a little bit more of the amino acids that those tendons need in order to really quickly grow at the rate that these kids are growing because 
you know, you'll see kids who grow four or five inches in a year. That's a huge stimulus. Your height growth is based on your bones, those growth plates pushing apart. That, that's dependent on collagen. That's the, the thing that's happening is the collagen is pushing apart because you're increasing the collagen content in the growth plate. And then you're mineralizing that collagen to make the bone. The same thing has to happen, obviously, at the tendons, where you're getting this elongation stimulus from the bone. Now your tendon has to grow in length. And sometimes you need to really increase the amount of collagen synthesis you're doing. And we've shown that you can do that by using dietary collagen. So especially in young athletes, that's something that we that we are, are really bringing in. And most of my daughter's in type of, when she starts to get things or her teammates have, Within a couple of weeks of a heavier load together with that dietary collagen in, intake, we see that those, those pains go away completely really quickly. Interesting. So that's the first component as far as that growth component. You can support that a little bit using some of these nutritional supplements. And keep quick, quickly there in terms of protein intake, in terms of hitting sort of a daily total and dividing it through the day, would that also provide the proline and glycine that we're looking for to a certain degree to be able to support that? And then the supplementation gives us additional benefit or... To some degree, so so what you're looking at is if, if you're taking in like a dairy-based protein or meat-based protein or plant-based protein, how much of these different amino acids or different substrates you're going to have is going to vary quite dramatically. Mm-hmm. So if you have athletes now who are young who are being, you know, much more interested in a in a cleaner, more vegetarian-based diet, well, they're not going to get any collagen intake in their diet at all because collagen is only made in animals. And so there you might have to look to supplement a little bit more. If you've got people who eat a lot of meat, maybe you don't have to supplement at all because you're getting a lot of that collagen content, which is the gristly bits of the meat, unless you're one that doesn't eat any of any of the stuff you have to chew. And so you you can modulate this. And the thing with dairy-based protein, like whey that we always use, chocolate milk is a great thing for just increasing this really complete protein. It's great for muscle. It's great for regeneration of muscle. The thing that it does for the connective tissue is very low in glycine. It's very low in proline. The result is that those amino acids actually go down in the period of time after you take, say, a a chocolate milk. And if you need something that's going to support your your collagen growth, if you don't have those amino acids, they could become conditionally essential for a growing individual. That's that's really interesting, yeah, in terms of uh, being able to support young athletes, really interesting application. Yeah, and then as you get older, now you've got this repetitive stress. And if you're only getting that one repetitive stress because you're only doing basketball or you're only in a throwing sport like baseball, or you're only getting that one movement where you're not adding into that, if you're a baseball player that you then do some tennis so you can do backhands and you can develop other musculature and other tendons within the system, if you're only getting that one repetitive motion over and over and over again, and you're not doing any other type of move, you're going to develop and slowly over time, especially with these high jerk movements. And all jerk is, is acceleration of the acceleration. So that just means if you do a fast movement, so jerk again. So where I am is my location. The rate of change of my location is my velocity. The rate of change of my velocity is acceleration. Mm-hmm. The rate of change of my acceleration is my jerk. So if I'm jumping, all of my power is going down first, and then it's immediately hitting the bottom and going up. That switch from going down to going up, big jerk. Now I'm going to land out of that. There's going to be a big contact. 
jerk that happens when I hit the ground. If, I, if that's all I'm doing because I'm a volleyball player, a basketball player, structurally, if you look in the knees of volleyball players and, and basketball players, about 80% of them have structural defects. Doesn't mean that 80% wow. of them have knee pain. It's just mm. that there is the potential to get that. And the higher you go in your level of play, so the more you get from juniors to, to national level to professional level, the likelihood of getting those structural defects actually increases. And it's just because you get tons of high, high velocity moves. And if you're not doing anything else, you'll eventually accumulate small amounts of damage. And the issue with small amounts of damage is that our tendons and ligaments are designed so that once you have a little bit of damage, that damaged area doesn't get the signal it needs in order to repair itself. And that's where the real problem comes in. Yeah, and I definitely want to circle back to how we can, from a training standpoint, start to address that sort of micro trauma. But if we if we stay on the nutrition side, when we talk about you know supplementation, nutrients, um, are there other things that coming down the pipeline or that have interest you that might be supportive of connective tissue and tendons, ligaments? So one of the things, so I have a PhD student who um, probably by the time this comes out, she'll be a doctor um, because she's defending uh, this coming Monday. And what she's doing is she's done a lot of the estrogen testosterone work. One of the things that she's been working on is she's been looking at phytoestrogens. So things that you would find in soy like genestin. Mm -hmm. And genestin is interesting because it's a plant compound that looks a little bit like estrogen. And so what it's supposed to do is supposed to bind to one of the two estrogen receptors, not both of them. And what Ketchy has shown is that when you give increasing doses of genestin up to a up to a relatively low level, you actually see an increase in collagen content within the tendons or ligaments. Wow. So that's really exciting. And you see a mechanical advantage as well. So that's really good because that suggests that there are things dietarily that we can do that are going to support increase in the stiffness across certain structures or at least making that structure more robust. We know that things like um, epicatechin, which, are, which you find in dark chocolate, also have a positive effect. And we think it works in a different way. We think that the way that that works is by increasing the amount of collagen mRNA, where we think that things like genestin or dietary collagen increase the translation of existing messages. And so that's really kind of cool as well, because it suggests that if you put the two things together, you get an even bigger effect. So there's lots of things that we're working on that are coming down the line as far as modulating or, or changing how much our, our tissues make collagen to make these tissues more robust and, and better able to deal with the kind of loading that you would see in an athlete who is really just all about one sport. In this next block of clips, we'll transition to caffeine and immunity. Joseph Gurgitz will share his research on the application of caffeine for strength, power, and endurance. And Dr. Michael Gleason will share his insights on the six main factors that compromise athlete immunity. So if we jump in here and talk the effects of caffeine on resistance training, can you discuss how caffeine might impact things like maximal strength and muscle endurance? Yeah, yeah, sure. So we, we just recently published a review paper on the effects of caffeine in resistance exercise. And I've also published a few original papers prior to this one. And 
basically from the current evidence, it seems that caffeine increases both strength and muscular endurance in resistance exercise, as well as uh, muscular power. So caffeine, um, some of the mechanisms by which caffeine can increase uh, performance in resistance exercise seem to predominantly relate to the effects of caffeine on uh, motor unit recruitment. So there's actually one really cool paper that examined this topic. Uh, it was published a couple of years ago. And they tested the effect. Uh, they tested uh, uh, motor unit recruitment uh, before the ingestion of caffeine and after uh, the, ingestion, the ingestion of caffeine. And it showed that basically the recruitment of motor units is increased by around 10%. And yeah, and that increase in motor unit recruitment is probably uh, the primary reason, the primary mechanism that might explain the effects of caffeine on strength. Now, uh, when we talk about the percent change or the effect of magnitude, magnitude of the effect, it's not uh, quite large. It's, uh, it's actually pretty small. Uh, so in our study where we tested the effects of caffeine on upper and lower body strength, the increase in strength was around 3% uh, with quite quite a high dose. It was a dose of 6 milligrams per kilogram. So while caffeine can definitely increase performance in, resist in resistance exercise, the effect uh, magnitude might not be all that high. Yeah, I suppose it depends on the population. 3% uh, can be a lot, obviously, in the more um, elite and trained individuals. Is there any is it similar in terms of the changes in power with the caffeine in terms of the yeah, effect? It seems that, yeah, in, in general, it seems that the effect of caffeine is somewhat greater on power. Um, so the effect of caffeine might be more on increasing contraction velocity than maximal force production. With that being said, there's only a couple of studies that examined power in resistance exercise. So I think there's only four. Um, the majority of studies examine the effects of of caffeine on strength, and uh, yeah, so the, the effect might be a bit greater on power and on endurance than on strength in resistance exercise. And amongst those, when we look at differences between lower body and upper body exercises, are there uh, tangible differences there, whether it's maximal strength, power with, with caffeine? Yeah, so uh, like historically, it has been suggested that the effects of caffeine seem to predominantly manifest in the lower body. So that study that I talked about, about uh, motor unit recruitment, so they examined percentage of motor unit recruitment in the quads and in the elbow flexors. And before the ingestion of caffeine, uh, the percent of motor unit recruitment in the quads is around 85%. But in the elbow flexors, it's around 97 98%. So when you ingest caffeine, there's a much uh, more greater um, area for improvement in the lower body because the percentage of motor um, percentage of motor unit recruitment uh, in the lower body is not towards the, uh, towards its maximal values, while in the upper body it seems that it is. So there was one meta analysis published in 2010, and they observed that the effects of caffeine predominantly manifest in the in the lower body, but not in the upper body musculature. Um, in yeah. that study that we, that we did uh, a couple of years back, we also tested the effects of caffeine on upper body and lower body strength. We used the 
back squat exercise and bench press, and there was a significant increase in lower body strength. Uh, and then the, uh, a couple of months back, we actually did a meta-analysis on the effects of caffeine, focusing only on 1RM tests. And in that meta-analysis, uh, we actually found the opposite when we pulled all of the studies. So meta-analysis means that we uh, reviewed the evidence and pulled the studies that examined uh, the effects of caffeine on a specific topic. So we looked at 1RM strength. And the effects of uh, seem to be greater in the upper body, which is in contrast to the made analysis from 2010. So it's kind of still tricky to say. Um, yeah, I imagine. And, and for yourself, in terms of, um, you know, what would your opinion be in terms of what might be happening there between those two conflicting results? And does it depend on you know, the individuals in the population, whether we're talking sort of untrained individuals versus, you know, team sport athletes yeah. versus even, you know, let's say power lifters. Or yeah, I would get, uh, my thoughts are that uh, uh, there's not a lot of studies that compare directly both uh, upper and lower body strength tests. And when you kind of, when you pull a meta-analysis that examined, uh, when you pull studies in a meta-analysis that examined different strength tests, sometimes you can get some unpredictable results. Um, so my thoughts on it are that probably caffeine can increase both upper and lower body strength, but the magnitude of the effect is probably lower for lower, lower body strength. Um, as far as the training st status goes, I'm not, uh, I'm not too convinced that the effects differ between trained and untrained individuals. Uh, it is commonly suggested that the effects of caffeine are predominantly in uh, trained lifters. But there's only one study that, that included both trained and untrained, and they actually found the opposite. So caffeine increased strength in the untrained individuals, but not in the trained individuals. Interesting, so yeah. So lots to be parsed out then. So yeah, it's a lot of conflicting findings. So. And what about the rate of perceived exertion? Obviously, in endurance athletes, we see this as a significant benefit. Does that also translate as well with resistance training and caffeine? Yeah, so... Uh, there is pretty good evidence suggesting that the uh, performance-enhancing effects of caffeine in aerobic exercise are predominantly due to the effects of caffeine on reducing RPE, or rating of perceived exertion. Um, but in, in resistance exercise, I don't honestly think so. We, in our study that we did, we actually observed a, a decrease in RPE, which was coupled with uh, an increase in strength, suggesting that RPE might... Uh, also contribute to the performance enhancing effects in resistance exercise. But I think predominantly it, uh, the effects of caffeine are on motor unit recruitment in resistance exercise. Um, RPE, reductions in RPE might contribute to the performance enhancing effects, but uh, I, I would say the jury is still out on that one. It's still pretty unclear. Yeah, that's really interesting stuff. And you know, I previously had Nancy Guest on in uh, season one of the podcast talking about her research in caffeine and endurance athletes. Um, and of course, that you know, the, the ability to metabolize caffeine, the, obviously the main enzyme responsible for caffeine metabolism, cytochrome P450, that CYP1A2 gene, which accounts for, you know, 95% or so of the caffeine clearance. And she, she found that there were what she called ultra-slow metabolizers that actually had a negative impact of caffeine on their endurance performance. Do you think that's a phenomenon that might exist as well with resistance-trained athletes? Yeah, there's actually one study just recently published. They, they showed a similar effect. But with that being said, uh, they, both, both of these studies used a similar um, 
caffeine supplementation protocol. So they administered caffeine 60 minutes prior to exercise. So if, if we have slow metabolizers of caffeine, maybe they still can increase their performance by supplementing with caffeine, but uh, they just might need to inge ingest caffeine like 90 minutes before exercise or two hours before exercise. Uh, and that's an area that still needs to be being investigated, obviously, but uh, I'm, I'm kind of, when, when, when we say that, that there's non-responders to caffeine, I'm kind of skeptical of that because I think everybody can ultimately respond. Uh, only the matter is the optimal pr protocol for the individual. Trying to support athlete immunity. I mean, to start with, what are the factors that can actually start to lower or depress immunity you know, for an athlete? Yeah, well, there's, there's probably about six main factors that can depress immunity in an athlete. And of course, any depression of immunity can mean an increased susceptibility to infection if the mm. actual exposure to pathogens in your environment remains about the same. So with the athletes, so in the two, the, probably the biggest one is the impact of the exercise they're doing, performing prolonged, uh, continuous training sessions, particularly if it's not with any uh, nutrition taken on board, can depress immunity. And that effect is sort of amplified when the, the athletes do periods of intensified training where they kind of cut out the recovery days that might normally intersperse training days yeah. in their normal sort of microcycle and um, yeah that's when they it, you, you start to get a real depression of immunity that you can measure kind of in the resting state and it's still present at least 12 hours since the last exercise bout so you know it's sort of a progressive thing that's happening there mm -hmm. you get that with prolonged bouts of exercise and intensified training but on top of that you've also got psychological stress which can also depress immunity. So worry, anxiety, depression, you know, that can affect an athlete, the way results are going, how they're performing in training. Are they keeping their coach happy? Are they falling out with their teammates? There's lots and lots of stresses in there, not to mention the monetary ones, at home. ones from the, yeah. the media and things. So, yeah, a lot of pressure uh, and stress, therefore, psychologically as well as physically. And then you've got that and also the exercise they do can impact on their sleep quality and their sleep quantity. So if they're getting less than seven hours sleep per night and their sleep efficiency is, say, less than about 90 percent, that's going to increase their risk of picking up infections as well by depressing their yep. immunity. They have to exercise in environmental extremes. That's an added stressor. So, you know, exercising extremes of heat or cold or altitude in particular adds to the stress of the exercise. Also, if there's a lack of sunlight like there is now in the winter, in the winter months in the Northern Hemisphere, you know, it uh, means probably vitamin D is going to be insufficient unless they're, you know, supplementing, which we recommend for all athletes. And uh, on top of that, you've got long haul travel going across three or more time zones, disrupts sleep, disrupts your body clock, and that impacts on immunity negatively as well. And then nutrition. You know, deficiencies yeah. of energy, protein, certain micronutrients, very important for immune function like iron, zinc, vitamin D, etc. Those all can cause, you know, depressed immunity as well. So, you know, kind of kind of lots of different things that can impact on that. We used to put it all down to exercise at one point when it all, you know, intensified training. 
but there's no realization that all these other factors come in and can be related or caused by some of this extra exercise that they're doing when they're training really hard. Yeah, it's interesting when we get to this time of year as well with sort of the modern schedules, compressed schedules. Um, so of all the things you mentioned, more than likely for a lot of athletes, all of those things are happening with sort of lack of sleep and we're traveling and training might be more intense or prolonged. We, we have, you know, the stresses of obviously the team that you mentioned. We also have the stresses at home and just, of course, the social media of things adding a layer of stressor. And so if we maybe start with the vitamin D side of things, mm-hmm. you know, where are we at now with in terms of testing vitamin D levels? Is there a certain level that's going to provide um, the most protection or up to a certain point that we're going to see protection in terms of immunity? Yeah, well, vitamin D status is usually uh, measured by taking a blood sample Mm -hmm. and measuring the concentration of 25-hydroxy in the blood serum. Uh, That's that's derived from what's being produced in in the liver where that first hydroxylation of the vitamin D precursor molecule takes takes place. And that Mm -hmm. seems to give us a good measure. The concentration of that in nanomoles per liter gives us a good measure of uh, vitamin D status. You have different classifications of it. So if it's less than 30, um, that's deficient. If it's uh, less than 50, it's considered inadequate. And somewhere above 50 and up to about 150 is the desirable range to be in. Um, For bone, certainly 50 is considered the adequate value. For immune function, it seems it's probably somewhat higher. So probably in excess of 100 would be desirable and at least 75. Uh, nothing below that really and studies that have actually measured various markers of immune function in athletes some of which we did ourselves when I was working at Loughborough in the labs there we uh, we found that the the best protection for the athlete against picking up infections and against getting you know more severe longer lasting symptoms when they did get infected was with above 120 nanomoles per litre you don't want to go too high. You can mm-hmm. only achieve that with your know, regular exposure to sunlight or yeah. by taking vitamin D supplementation. And there is a limit that's suggested to be 4,000 international units per day. Mm-hmm. It's the maximum you should take to avoid going above 150 nanomoles per litre, which could potentially be, be harmful. And is that why we potentially see more and more teams sort of heading off to warmer climates in the wintertime to, you know, if we can only get to 4,000 IU really per day of supplementation, that's going to provide us some benefit, you know, potentially going away for these small training camps to somewhere warm to be able to, to get that real exposure? Well, I guess that helps, but you can, you can, you can achieve it just by supplementation. Yeah. And I mean, probably 2,000 units, per, international units per day is, is what we recommend for an athlete that will ensure that they have levels that are in excess of at least 75 nanomoles per litre of that metabolite. So that's good. I think the, the going to the training camp is just sort of a perhaps a, a psychological boost, you know, a change of scene, a bit of nice warm sunshine, making sure. the players or the, the athletes feel good. And, and so in your opinion, I know a lot of teams will kind of get hung up on if someone's at 80 nanomoles or 90 nanomoles trying to push them up to past 90 or towards 120 and then they might decide to go rather than 4,000 IU let's do 8,000 or 10,000 IU um, you know would you be advising against that type of you know we've seen some adverse yeah, yeah, data there, on some of the downstream metabolites there yeah there, there, there have been some papers that suggest that's um, not desirable from from a from a health perspective mm-hmm. and that 
observations that have been made on people who don't take supplements but who are living in sunny environments you know um your your vitamin d concentration the 25 hydroxy vitamin d in the blood never goes above 150 because we regulate it mm -hmm. and, we, and we stop producing vitamin d in the body when we get to that level so that that's more or less telling you the body doesn't want to go above about yeah. 150 so don't do it with supplements yeah great point and you know what about for athletes you know black athletes hispanic athletes um you know we the normal ranges that we see aren't necessarily we don't have as much data on different populations do we so in your opinion i, mean, I know again certain groups will have a, an athlete that has a level that's lower in yeah. terms of that quote-unquote normal range and they're really making big efforts to push that number up and sometimes despite any real symptoms of the athlete uh, you know being immune depressed catching colds and flus struggling with any other sort of performance or recovery metric but the fact that it is 20 or 25 nanomoles per liter in let's say a black athlete then that becomes more cause for concern could you maybe comment on what the, the body of knowledge is around the different uh, ethnicities yeah. Well, certainly uh, from the measurements I've seen on some uh, professional football soccer players, yeah. um, you know, they have uh, a whole mixture of races within their squads quite often. You can have Asian players, you can have Chinese players, yeah. as well as British players, European players, and players from, from Africa and the Caribbean as well. So, yes, there's a whole mixture of skin colours in there. Mm -hmm. and, and the ones who are darker skinned, in particular the, the black players do tend to always have lower uh, vitamin D status when they're, when they're first measured before any supplementation uh, is, is given. Uh, so, but they, they're treated in the same way as, as, as the rest of the squad and they, they, they take exactly the same supplements and mm -hmm. it, just, it just seems to bring them up to the, to the same level as everybody else. So I mean, there's no real need for any special uh, considerations there. Other than that, if you're getting, if you've just signed a new player to your team, and, he, and he's a black guy, then uh, yeah, you, you you might want to test him for his vitamin D status and put him on supplementation if he's you know below seventy five. For our final clip, we'll pivot to mindset. Who better than Dr. Michael Gervais, host of the Finding Mastery podcast, to share his journey and the tools you need to unlock your full potential this is all looking back, mm -hmm. you know? So I didn't know at the time as it was unfolding, how it was working, but it's pretty clear looking back is when I was a young athlete, surfing was my first sport of choice. And there's two types of surfing. There's free surfing and competitive surfing. And in free surfing, there's a code, you know, and that code was don't talk about it, be about it, put yourself in the most dangerous wave, you know, the day and experience that fully. And then don't check to see if anyone's looking you know, just know that have this internal knowing and, you know, it's the quote unquote hardcore approach. And I fit in that. That was cool. And I, I secretly kind of wanted some people to say that was cool, you know, like, but yeah. that, that culture was great for me and then flip over to competitive surfing. I wanted to give it a go. And in, in the hardcore surfing world, um, it was like, you know, those kooks over there that are competing, they, they're blowing it for the sport. Like, the, you know, they've got it all backwards. They're sponsored and there's stickers on their board and they're doing splashy things. And yeah, I wanted to give it a go. And um, I should set a little more context is that when I was young and uh, I'm talking like in nine, 10, 11, 12 years old, 
I did, I wasn't exposed to the ocean uh, for surfing. And so I, I tried, my parents introduced me to stick and ball sport. Yeah. And it was obvious. It was like this reaction I had, which was like, what are these adults screaming at us for? <laughs> and what are all these rules? Who made up these rules? Like, what do you mean? If you put your foot on the line, you're out like, shit, I got control of the ball. Let's go. You know, yeah. I'm thinking soccer right now. Yeah. So I didn't get these artificial rules and these, you know, these kind of adults screaming at kids. And so I didn't, I didn't vibe it. And that when I found action sports, skateboarding, surfing, motocross, BMX, I was like, oh, mother nature's the teacher. <laughs> like, nice. okay, I got respect. So back to surfing, as soon as I lent my hand to competitive surfing, I was a disaster, dude. Like all these people on the beach judging me, yeah. <laughs> critiquing me. And Something like, else, right? I couldn't get it right. And I, I understand now what I understand exactly what was happening, but it was this moment where it was a, another competitor. He was a few years older than me and he paddled by me. There was just three of us out in the water, per, clean conditions. It was like eight in the morning, exactly what you would hope for about head high waves, super glassy, great conditions. Nice. And he paddles by me and he says, Gervais, I surf with you every day out here. You, you got to stop worrying about what other people are thinking about you. I was like, how does he know? Yeah, yeah. How, how does he, he know? You know, like, yeah, how did he, he knew? Cause he, he struggled with it probably, you know, you spot it, you got it. And so um, from that moment, I didn't know what sports psychology was. I didn't know anything, but it kind of hit me, which was like, yeah, my body hasn't changed. My skills are the same as yesterday. The hell it was my mind. Mm -hmm. And so eventually that was the age 15. Eventually it set me down this path to really want to understand how the mind works because we take it everywhere we go boardroom living room ocean pitch field court whatever it might be we take it and um i wanted to get that thing dialed in because it was it was such a mess and so that that's how it started for me it's interesting i mean i growing up playing a lot of team sports you know it's very reactionary you get into the flow of things and so you shake off a lot of that and playing into some individual sports. I started playing golf late in my high school years and started getting into it. And then all of a sudden you played in the tournament and a little bit similar to what you're saying. So now all of a sudden everyone's looking at you rather than just being on the course with your buddies and all these internal thoughts, you have so much time to think rather than react or respond. And, you know, if we, if we sort of fast forward to the early stages of your career, are there some moments that stick out with working with athletes, you know, that were particularly challenging at that point, or that really forced you to to push yourself outside of that initial comfort zone that we have when we have our training and, and some of the philosophies we want to lay down, but then that reality of the real world practice, you know, presents roadblocks in itself, right? Yeah, uh, that's a cool question. No one's ever asked me that before. What happened early on for me was that I, right after my graduate training, I needed a job. And so action sports, you know, wasn't, they weren't hiring. It's a little bit off access back country, you know? So I found myself in pro sport. <laughs> it was stick and ball. And so you're back. Yeah, I'm back. And I, I didn't, I didn't quite get it at that time. And they didn't quite, it just wasn't a great fit. So I left after about five years pro sport and went Red Bull fired up a high performance program. I was fortunate enough to kind of find a spot in that emerging discipline of sports science inside of action sports mm -hmm. and it was great it was super electric it was awesome and so to answer your question there was a project i worked on called red bull stratos and so felix baumgartner was the athlete who uh, the team built a capsule and this was a 
aerospace engineered you know project yeah they built a capsule took them up to 130,000 feet which is up there you know Never seen and that. it's 100,000 feet higher than an airliner and it's kind of the curvature of space it's right where right about where you would shoot off to zero gravity into outer space and kind of be out of orbit there's enough Madness. it wasn't that part wasn't dangerous but it was just really high yeah and um you know the project started to skid because he was developing some fear around you know uh, the whole thing and so we did some good honest work so if you lose a game in stick and ball mm, you know sucks but okay sucks. it sucks not the end of the you know world. but yeah it's not like it was um i don't know 200 or a thousand years ago where the warring tribe took your family mm, you know like okay that loss that's that's a bad loss that's the worst. That's as bad as it gets, right? Mm-hmm. So in stick and ball, it's so far from that. And then this one was somewhere in between, which is if he makes mistakes, or if we made a mistake, in our preparation and training, um, or if somebody on the design capsule, you know, made a mistake, like his life is, you know, at risk. And so that's when I, I had a moment where I was like, I had to take that leap from science using good science, grounded, well-tested laboratory science, and then bridge it into an environment that has not, it has not been tested in the environment that we were working in. So that bridge takes, there's a leap that happens in there. And that's what would keep me up at night, which is taking good grounded science. One, to get your arms around that, that's, that's a full lift in yeah. and of itself. Yeah. And then to have enough reference points and contextual understanding so and those are two like contextual understanding and reference points are two different dynamic requirements to do good applied science Mm -hmm. and to have those in place with a little bit of intuition to say i think this is how it needs to fold for these circumstances you know uh for red bull stratos you know for example yeah and there was a moment where um we didn't know and so we had to kind of work through some of that stuff and that was a moment where it, it eventually worked out to kind of get to the end of the story. He was successful and everything was good. Put the link but to that, the clip. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. That will, um, it was a good experience. That leap when the stakes are that high, uh, I think for all of us applied scientists and athletes that are trying to sort this thing out, it's like, do you really know your shit? And so that's when you, you, you can't all of a sudden zoom forward you know, like I got a crash course on yeah. whatever this approach is and figure it out. Like you, you just have to have those reference points, which takes time, the contextual, contextual understanding, and then all of that science to be able to make um, an innovation, a required innovation. So um, that was a time that was really testing. I was going to say, I imagine it takes a lot of reading of the athlete too, and the individual in front of you to, to be able to nudge and adjust them as, as they need, because it's going to be different if there was a different athlete or extreme athlete in that situation, I imagine, right? Yeah, the relationship is foundational for psychology. And it's like been found to be somewhere around 60 to 70% of intervention effects is based on the relationship itself, which is phenomenal. So if you come in with the best tool, but you don't have any sort of connection, it usually doesn't work out. So to your point, yes. Thanks for listening to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. As always, appreciate you taking the time. Please rate, review, and subscribe to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. It's a big help to the show. And 
keeps us attracting the best of the best in performance nutrition. All right, see you next time. The Dr. Bubbs Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bubbs Performance Podcasts.